right, Isaiah chapter 43, we continue our study in Isaiah's prophecy together. And just a reminder, the backdrop of these uh, events as Isaiah is prophesying now really connect themselves to what will actually be events that have not yet come to pass but will come to pass in the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, and that is that they will ultimately find themselves uh, conquered by the Babylonian Empire. At this point, historically, the Empire of Babylon has not even overtaken the Assyrian Empire, but they will. And then the Babylonian Empire will be who will take Judah as they conquer them off into captivity as exiles for a 70-year period where, as a part of God's predicted judgment, remember, for the rejection of uh, 70 Sabbath years, every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year where they were to let the land lie fallow and rest according to God's prescribed uh, instruction to them. And Israel ignored that. And so God basically recouped those 70 years by putting them out of his land because it really isn't their land. It's his land. Now, he's given it to them to be tenants. There's no dispute over that. In fact, that's even the greater reason why we should always to this day still respect that Israel are not the occupiers of that land. They are God's eternal destined tenants of that land. God isn't given the land to anyone else. He doesn't want to rent it to anyone else. He's given it to the nation of Israel. Uh, and it's not even technically at the end of the day so much a issue with Israel. They are God's only occupants. It's God's land. And God can give it to whoever he wants. In fact, the whole globe belongs to God, but particularly that land, God wants the nation of Israel in it. But as his tenants, he also expected certain things of them, if you would, of the divine lease. And they ignored that together with some of their other idolatry and rebellion. And so they found themselves ultimately being captured, taken out of the land, the southern kingdom of Judah, for 70 years in Babylon. And then, of course, at the end of those 70 years, God spoke to the heart of Cyrus, who was then the Medo-Persian ruler at that time. Medo-Persia would then conquer Babylon as the next world empire. God would stir the spirit of Cyrus, Ezra 1 tells us, to encourage and actually instruct the Jews to go back to their homeland to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their city of Jerusalem, and they would ultimately return back. God would bring them from the far distant land where they were and would call them back to their homeland. And that is a lot of the backdrop in which Isaiah is speaking these things. And understand, some of these things they're hearing won't happen for a considerable amount of time historically, but the fact that the Spirit of God, who is uh, eternal, like God himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, is already speaking of things predictably in advance that will come to pass way down the historical timeline out into the future and how precious it probably really was as Isaiah received these things and spoke these things for them to be able to hold on to these truths and these promises that God speaking to them as they would go through their time of discipline and hardship and know there was hope and that God was going to restore them after the captivity, after their time of discipline and judgment, that God had restorative plans for them, that he wasn't finished with them. Uh, and a lot of these things connect themselves to those very realities. So chapter 43 picks up with God speaking, saying, But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, 
O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name, and you are mine. Now imagine again, after you have failed, perhaps you're suffering the discipline of the Lord, the consequences for your mistakes, they're in the midst of their captivity. How encouraging when you're dealing with your own personal feelings of condemnation and the lying voice of the enemy and the thoughts going on in your mind, God's through with you, you're a failure, he wants nothing to do with you, to be able to recall that the heart of God, even in the midst of the things that God would say, listen, uh, I'm not done with you, you're mine. I chose you, I formed you, I called you, I created you, I've redeemed you, and I have purposes and plans for you because you're mine and I'm going to finish my purposes in your life. And God speaks to them as a nation in this way. And, you know, we like to take to some degree uh, a lot of credit at times as the nation of the United States of America. And look, I, I love our nation. I've become more patriotic the older that I've gotten. I find myself in some ways uh, and we recognize that we have a unique heritage, that we have a Judeo-Christian ethic, and I do believe the divine providence of God was in many ways connected to the establishment of our nation, but there really only is one nation from a national perspective that God's word itself, that we can validate that God says such things to, as we see here again in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, where God says of the nation not just an individual. He's not talking about creating a person. He's speaking on a national level where he says to this nation of Israel, I created you. I formed your nation. In other words, we understand certainly from a biblical perspective of well, Psalm 139, that yes, that does apply on a personal level. Each individual God has created. He's created all of our lives. He knits us together in our mother's womb. Uh, he writes all of our days into his book before they ever come to be. He fashions our inward parts. And yes, the word of God teaches that. But contextually, this is speaking about God creating a specific national people group and forming them and putting them together from the earliest days of calling their father Abraham. And then, of course, Jacob who was the representative of the 12 nations of Israel. And again, we see this back and forth reference, as we've talked about before, Jacob, who ultimately his name is changed to Israel. Jacob refers to the time when Jacob, in his natural personality, remember he was a manipulator and a conniver. He was quite a scoundrel, and God wrestled him and broke him of that disposition and ultimately really had to cripple him in order to be able to truly crown him with the promises and the purpose of God that he had for him. And sometimes that's a fitting analogy. Sometimes God does have to wrestle us and cripple us to ultimately be able to really crown us and bless us with the things that he wants. And sometimes we can become our own worst enemies. And Jacob really was that in a lot of ways. But much changed in Jacob's life after God broke him and wrestled with him. And then his name was changed to Israel, which means no longer heel catcher, Yaakov, Jacob, which was the description of his personality from the very moment of his birth, pulling his brother's heel, trying to get ahead of him. And God changed his name to Israel, which means governed by God or prince of God, one under the rulership of God, because God ultimately brought him to a place of submission as a man. And when he came to a place of submission, God then worked through him. He became the founder of the nation. But again, Jacob speaks of his, his 
natural disposition, his unworthiness, Israel speaks of the reality of what God did by his spirit in his life. And so the nation oftentimes is referred to by both titles uh, because God would see them at times acting in the disposition of their national father, Jacob. And at times he would also want them to realize that they were his chosen people, governed by him, ruled over by him. And here they're reminded that they were created by God and formed by God, but not only that they shouldn't fear because they had also been redeemed by God and called by him and therefore made his. So notice, they were both created by God and redeemed by God. Two separate things. Created originally, God gave them their origin And then the word redeemed, that's the idea of paying a ransom price, a redemption price to purchase back that which has been lost. That's what redemption is, right? Back in the day when there were things like cutting coupons before we went grocery shopping, you would redeem, you know, your coupon. And that was the idea. To redeem was to pay a price to be able to achieve and to experience some benefit. And redemption was something that even in the days of Israel, when they... If a person fell into poverty and they sold themselves into slavery or they sold off a portion of their land, a kinsman redeemer, a goel, a blood relative, a kinsfolk, was able to pay a price to redeem you back, to purchase back your freedom, to get you out of slavery, to restore back maybe your land or your possessions, what you had lost because of your unfortunate maybe circumstances or situation. And so God uses this term of how he redeems his people. And and what a beautiful thing to realize they were both gods originally, but then as they fell into sin, God redeemed them back and paid the price to restore them back to himself. They were both created by God. He's both their creator and he is also their redeemer. And look, the same thing applies to us ultimately. True, right? God's created all of our lives. He's created us. He's formed us. But because of sin, we entered into spiritual slavery to sin, enslavement to Satan, if you would, the father, uh, the spiritual father of those who living outside of a relationship with God, the devil. But through Jesus Christ, God's redeemed us, right? The purchase price was paid and God's redeemed us back to himself in that same way. And what a beautiful thing to realize that we belong to God in a double sense. We belong to him because he created us, but we also belong to him because after he created us and we rebelled and got into trouble, he bought us back and purchased us back. He bought back the very thing that already belonged to him, and he paid the price for it. And God here is reminding Israel of this to show them really the extent of his faithfulness and his amazing grace and his love that though they belonged to him originally and rebelled, that he also then restored them back by redeeming them in the ways that he did. And he says, therefore, you don't have to fear. I know your failures. I know what you've done to yourself. But he says, don't don't fear. Fear not, he says. I've called you. I've got a plan for you. You are mine. And then he goes on to say, verse 2, and when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And they would go through difficult waters as they went into captivity, as the Babylonians came in and conquered them, sacked the city, burned things down, loss of life, taken off captive into a foreign land for many years, separation of family, loss of loved ones. They'd go through tremendous hardships, but God's saying to them, listen, when you pass through that fire, When that time comes, because God knew it was on the horizon, when you pass through the the waters, he says, excuse me, I will be with you, 
and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. The idea is they won't drown you. You'll be in deep waters. You're going to pass through deep and, and hard waters, but he says those deep waters are not going to overflow and drown you. And when you, he says, verse 2, walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. So take notice, if you would, first of all, what God is saying to them in verse 2 there. Notice the language. He doesn't say, if you pass through the waters. He says, when you pass through the deep waters. Notice, it wasn't a matter of it might happen. It was just a matter of when it was going to transpire. That God knew this was on the horizon for them. God knew this was a part of the schedule of their life events nationally. In the same way for all of our lives, we know personally that tribulation and trials, whether it's at times we pass through deep waters and we go through the fire, maybe because of our own poor decisions, and sometimes that happens, right? We suffer the consequence of our own bad choices or sinful actions. That's one way we bring kind of, we talk about self-inflicted trials upon ourselves, and then we got to pass through difficult times maybe because of the self-inflicted consequences of our poor choices or sinful behaviors. And then there are other times that it's just part of the journey on this earth, right? Jesus said, in this world, you will face tribulation, that part of this earthly journey is going to be hardships, difficulties. We're going to go through storms, if you would, and fiery trials. And, and the Lord doesn't say here, if you pass through the waters and if you walk through the fire, he says, when you do. When you go through those things, he says, notice, you pass through them. You pass through those things. It comes to pass in, the, in a literal sense. Things come, but they don't last forever. They come to pass. And even if they don't pass until ultimately we get on the other side of the veil of this earth and into eternity, they still do come to pass. Even if it's a struggle for the entire earthly existence, those of us who have hope in Christ and understand eternal realities, eventually it does come to pass. It comes to an end, and it comes, but it ultimately passes. Or sometimes it's a hardship for a season, and we go through deep waters and difficult times, and it's stormy. But he says, when you pass through those waters, here's the thing, he says, of your assurance and mine, and theirs, Israel, as a child of God. He says, you, you don't pass through those waters alone. I'll be with you. I'll be in the boat with you, just like Jesus was in the boat with his disciples. He says, my presence will be the stabilizing influence in your life when you're in the stormy waters and when the rivers flood and things get deep and you find yourself in deep, scary waters, God says, they're not going to drown you. It may be difficult. It may be a struggle, but he says, I will be with you and I won't let it drown you. His presence is what sustains us, right? His, his power and his grace and the provision he gives to us he passes through those things with us, and he says, and when you walk through the fire, and again, notice, uh, he says, walk through the fire. Now, again, to me, interesting language of the Spirit of God there. Myself, personally, if I step on a hot coal, I'm running, right? <laughs> Ouch! I'm, uh, there's a fire. I'm not going to walk through the fire. I'm going to run through the fire. But God says, when you walk through the fire. A walk gives the indication of a, a sense of taking your time, one step at a time, not run through the fire. He says, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. 
God says, I, I won't let it damage, destroy, scorch, and burn you. Of course, we read this and we think of ultimately how God brought this to pass in a degree. Daniel chapter 3, right? Remember when Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down to the golden image and idolatry. And when they stood strong for the Lord and they said, look, if you, anybody who doesn't do this, you're going to get tossed into the fiery furnace. And they said, look, if, if our God doesn't save us, we're willing to do whatever it takes to honor him. And we're willing to give up our lives. And ultimately, they stand strong for the Lord. They don't bow down. And in faith and confidence, they want to honor the Lord, even if it meant they could have lost their life. But what happens? Remember, they get tossed into the fiery furnace. And it tells us that as they look in, that they see a fourth person in there, one like the Son of Man, walking around, walking around with them in the fire. And it says that ultimately when they're taken out, that not only are their clothes not scorched, it says the only thing that had been burnt off were the bonds, the things that they had tied them up with. Interesting, when you go through the fire, the only thing that gets destroyed are things that were keeping us in bondage. And a fire does have a way to purge and burn good things out of our lives, or bad things, I should say, out of our lives for good purposes, but it says they didn't even smell like smoke. God preserved them supernaturally. And boy, it is amazing, the preserving power of God, how sometimes, whether it's, again, going into deep waters, thinking that this is it, this is going to drown me. That's going to drown them. There, there's no way they're going to survive that. They, they are going to drown out there. They are in some deep waters, deep calls on the deep, and they are not going to make it. They're gonna, this is going to drown them. Or we go through something and we think, man, this is, this is the fiery furnace. This is going to wreck me. And God says, I'm going to walk with you through the fire, and I'm going to protect you the whole way through it. I'm going to preserve you and bring you out the other side of it. By his presence, he's able to do that. What precious promises God spoke these to his people. And to some degree, as we journey through things, we can relate to them ourselves. Perhaps it's an encouraging word from the Lord for you to hold on to tonight. He says, verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Interesting, again, here God speaks now not only of being their God, but being their Savior, the one who delivered them, the one who spared them and set them free from their bondage. He then says, in connection to that, I gave Egypt... For your ransom, that is the ransom price, the price of redemption, Ethiopia and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight, you have been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Now, what Isaiah is referencing there under the inspiration of the Spirit, when he talks about being their savior, now he gave Egypt and Ethiopia uh, and Seba as their ransom payment in their place because God loved them and saw them as precious to set them free. Perhaps what he's most likely describing here is we know ultimately that these were territories that were conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. So these territories were conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire and taken prisoner, and God caused the Medo-Persian Empire to set his people free and delivered them so the same Cyrus, the same Medo-Persian rulers and, and people who conquered other people and made them their captors and their prisoners, God said, I allow them to be the payment so that you could be set free. And I stirred the heart of Cyrus and said, but send these people back home. Deliver these people and set them free. And God says, I considered you so precious in my sight 
you have been so honored by me and I love you so much. He said, I was willing to let others in this situation be captured and conquered historically. And somehow God saw that as a connection to that there was that's part of what stirred the willingness of Cyrus perhaps to say, look, I don't need these Jewish people. They've been around long enough in my kingdom. Send them back home. I believe the God of Israel wants me to let them go free. And, and I've got new captors now. And in a sense, God says, I let them be conquered because you were precious that you might be set free. And again, working sovereignly in the midst of even world affairs and God connecting that to how precious his people were in his sight. What a beautiful thing to think that God looks upon us as precious in his sight and that he loves us so much that he honors us in the ways that he does things for us, giving us favor at times. Verse five, he says, fear not for I am with you. And again, notice this repetitious theme. We've been seeing it all through these chapters repeatedly. God speaking away, fear, anxiety, fear not, fear not. He knows we fear, but he doesn't want us to be conquered by fear and controlled by it. So again, fear not. And what is that always tied to? Because I am with you. I'm with you. It's the awareness of the presence of God that settles our fears because fear stems really from loss really if you boil down fear fear is about the concern of loss either it's i'm in fear because i have lost something or even someone right so sometimes fear strikes in natural fear comes you lose a job you lose money you lose a loved one you lose something that was a stabilizing thing that gave you security, and fear sets in. So fear is connected, or sometimes fear is connected to the concern of potential loss. What if I lose my job? What if I lose all my money? Uh, what if something happens to that person? What if they break up with me? What, what if this person you know, is no longer in? And so fear is either directly connected to the experience of loss or the concern of loss. And so God says, listen, but my presence can't be lost. I'll always be with you. I'll never leave you or forsake you. And my presence is able to sustain you. It fills the gap when we do lose something. And it is the assurance that even if we may go through loss of certain things, and we do in life, God says, but you'll never lose me. You'll never lose me because I'll remain faithful to you and I am with you. And therefore he says, Fear not, for I am with you. He says, I will bring your descendants from the east, gather you from the west, and say to the north, give them up, let them free the ideas, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth. Now, here he's speaking of, of this idea of the regathering of the Jews from all distant and foreign lands back to their homeland, and this would be something that God would do. He would regather them according to his predictive plans. He would regather them from the different territories they were scattered back to their homeland. He did it in that time period. Uh, he also has done it at times through human history. The Bible also speaks of how God would regather ultimately the nation of Israel back into their land to be reestablished there. Again, Ezekiel 36 and 37 describe Again, the, the dry bones coming back to life. God, again, regathering his people back to the homeland of Israel after they had been driven out of their land uh, for many, many centuries. Uh, really a sociological miracle to have no homeland 
and to retain their national identity. No other people group have ever been without a homeland and retained their national identity, but Israel did because they're unlike any other people group. God's always had a plan for them. And he regathered them back. And of course, you know, May 1948, that, you know, once again, in a day, God birthed a nation. We're going to see the end of Isaiah talks about that. Is, is a nation born in a day? Israel was. <laughs> in a day. May 1948, God reestablished them as a nation there because he regathered them back. And the Bible speaks of a continual regathering as well. The people will be drawn, Jews, from all around the globe, from all the four corners of the earth, they will be regathering back to their land more and more as part of the existence of Israel and their homeland connected to the return of Christ as well. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 said he will send forth his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect, referring to Israel, from the four winds, the four directions of the earth from one end of heaven to the other. So God's speaking of a regathering that they would return because he would be drawing them back supernaturally to the land. Everyone, he says, verse 7, who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him, God says, yes, and I have made him. It's interesting the way God speaks to his people here. He says, I'm regathering those back who my plan is upon their life, who I've called by my name. And I like this. I have it underlined here where he says, whom I created for my glory. God says, these people, my people who I created for my glory. So important that we recognize God was conveying to his people, this is what the creation and existence of your life is about for my glory. And so important that you and I recognize, Revelation chapter 4 tells us that all things, even humanity that exists, we, we exist for God's purpose, for his will, for his glory. And the chief you know, aim of our life really should be if we want to find meaning and purpose for our existence, it is to live to glorify God. To the degree that we understand that we as people were created not for self-fulfillment, not to achieve this on the earth or accomplish that on the earth or to experience this on the earth. We were created, our life primarily exists according to the word of God. It primarily exists, our created life, to glorify God. And to the end that we live seeking to glorify God, we will find the greatest amount of fulfillment and purpose and we will experience the highest ideal for what God intends for us as we remember, that's what I was created for. I was created for God's glory, to live my life to glorify God, created in his image and likeness, now redeemed by Jesus, filled with the spirit, and to live for God's glory. Listen, if you're looking for purpose in your life or meaning right now or for the season of head, ask yourself, Lord, how can I use my life for your glory? He'll answer you. He'll show you because that's what you were created for. And if you live for that purpose, you'll find the greatest fulfillment. He's formed you for him and for his glory. Verse 8, he says, bring out the blind people. Now he's speaking of how his people, despite their condition, uh, were still blinded in their eyes and deaf in their ears. As we saw in the last chapter, they weren't listening to the Lord. He says, verse 9, let all the nations be gathered together and let the peoples be assembled who among them can declare this and show us 
former things. So the picture here, God's using an analogy, a picture of like a courtroom here, like calling court to session. He's saying, gather together, all peoples, come together, assemble, and declare, who of you can show former things? Let them bring out their witnesses, God says. Call their witnesses to the stand. If they know more than me, that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, it is truth. And then God says of his people, Israel, once again, verse 10, you are my witnesses. God says, here's the witness I call to the stand, the existence of the nation of Israel, because they are such a miraculous nation. <laughs> They're a tremendous testimony of the existence of God. You know, I forget who it was years before. It was a dispute going on, and forgive me for forgetting names. Somebody said, give me one proof of God. And the person said, Israel. That is one of the clearest proofs of God. No other nation has experienced what they have, and the reason is there's a divine plan upon them in such a way that God has such uniquely orchestrated what he has through their lives, not only the giving of Christ and the word of God and all those things, but just what he has done with them as a nation, as a people group, despite their own errors and despite all the satanic resistance that's come against them, the, the, you know, the persecution and all that existed. And God says, here's my witness. He says, my witnesses are you, he says to Israel. You're my witnesses. I call to the stand, God says, exhibit A. Uh, of, of the reality of who I am. You are my witnesses, he says. And verse 10, my servant whom I have chosen, notice God chose them to serve his purposes as a nation. Unfortunately, they didn't faithfully fulfill all those things and such has been some of the complications they brought upon themselves. They didn't fulfill their high calling to be a servant of God, to be his witnesses. That's what they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be God's witness to the nation, even where he put them strategically. They were on the Via Mare, the, 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 even the trade routes, really where people from different continents would cross through north, south, east, and west in such a way that God would bring the nations through the land that they might be a light unto the world, unto the Gentiles of the one true and living God. God chose them to be his witnesses of the one true and living God to be his servants. He says that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there ever be, the idea is, any God formed after me. I, even I, am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. I have declared and saved. I have proclaimed. And he says, there was no foreign God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. So again, they were called, they were chosen by God. It says there, verse 10, to know God, to believe, and to understand who he was as the one true living God. There is no other gods. There is no other. God. He says, I am the one true and living God. There may be false images and ideas and idols of other things, but he says, it's not like I was the first God. And then other gods were formed, sub-gods. No, God says, there's been no God since me. And God has no problem. He's completely secure. God's very secure in himself, if you ever noticed that. He has no insecurity issues. He's not concerned about what some liberal, squeaky college student is saying. over here. 
You're not changing my mind, God says. I'm the one true God. There are no other gods. There are no other ways. You can form all you want to form, God says. It's all fraudulent. It's all, God would say, probably first for everybody, that's all fake news. <laughs> it's all fake, God says. You can, you can pout and shout and say all you want, but God says, I know who I am. I am the Lord. And besides me, he says, verse 11, there is no other Savior. No other Savior exists. Now, again, this reminds me of really Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where remember Peter proclaiming Jesus' power said of Jesus, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, we must be saved. We all need to be saved from our sin. And the Bible says that there is no other Savior. The New Testament companion to that promise, Peter proclaims, speaking of Jesus of Nazareth in Acts 4, salvation cannot be found in any other person or in any other name other than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior, because he was Yahweh God, who became flesh, God our Savior. God became the Savior, because he is the only God and the only Savior at the same time. Verse 13, he says, Indeed, before the day was, I am. In other words, God was preexistent to all things, the eternally existent God. Before the day even arrived, God says, I am he. I, I like that. <laughs> God says, well, what's going to happen tomorrow? God says, before the day starts, I'm already there. Before the day was, before that day came to pass, you know, sometimes just, oh man, that dreaded day, God says, I was, I was already there before that day came. I knew that day was coming. I know tomorrow is coming. I, God says, before the day was, I am he. He's the great I am, the ever-present one, the all-becoming one. Whatever we need, he becomes each and every day. And there is no one who can deliver, God says, out of my hand. I like this statement. God says, I work, who will reverse it? God says, when I work, no one can undo what I have done. Notice that. No one can undo God's work. God's work is secure. When God does something, no one can undo something because ultimately, even man's resistance, man's rebellion, God will ultimately get his way. It may not be in the timetable that we think or prefer because God's really patient and, and, and God's very merciful. But when God works and God's in something, we don't have to work, oh no, is somebody going to change that or reverse it? Or God says, if I work, nobody's going to reverse it. What, what, what I do is going to stand. It's going to, to rest secure. It reminds me of Job 42, verse 2, where there it says a little different way. There it says, Job declared of God after seeing all that happened, he said, Lord, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Lord, I know you can do everything and no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Look, whatever the Lord does, if the Lord is the one doing the work, you can rest. Nobody's going to reverse it. doesn't matter what people do. And let me just say from a personal encouragement standpoint, that's ultimately true as well in regards to the spiritual work of God's salvation in your soul. Oh, I failed. I stumbled. I messed up. I, what about myself? God says, look, Philippians 1, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, work, spiritual work, will be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. 
if God began a work in you by His Spirit, you're not going to reverse it because you failed or flubbed up or made some mistakes, and nobody else is going to reverse it. <laughs> if God did a work, nobody's going to reverse that work. He's going to finish that work of salvation and His Spirit's work in your soul, and what a great assurance we can rest when God starts something and nobody's going to hinder it or keep it from coming to pass. We can rest in that in faith. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon. Now notice God specifically points out here what he was going to do. They would go to Babylon, but then when the time came and they had served their disciplinary experience at the end of the 70 years, he says, I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, who rejoice in their ships, use, they use their ships to go about and do things. They would then hop in those ships one day and as they were conquered by the Medo-Persians and run for their lives, and then God would use the Medo-Persians to then release his people from that land, that foreign land, once the Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians. I am the Lord, he says, your holy one. Notice, the creator of Israel, your king. Again, notice the language in a national sense the creator of the nation of Israel, the king of the nation of Israel. God calls himself both their creator nationally and the king of their national existence, the ruler over them. Now, sadly, because they've rejected that in many ways, they've brought upon themselves some unfortunate consequences over time historically because they haven't recognized Yahweh God as they always should as the king over them, even in the earliest days when they, remember, asked for a king like the other nations and they got Saul uh, and they rejected, if you would, the theocracy, the kingship and the rulership of God. And whenever they refuse that, they've always brought consequences and problematic things into their national lives as a people. Verse 16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power, they shall lie down together, they shall not rise, they shall be extinguished, they are quenched, snuffed out, the idea is like a wick. Now, what God does here is, is he recalls their prior, remember, deliverance out of slavery and bondage when they were in Egypt. And he references that here, how in time past, historically, God delivered them before when they were enslaved and when they were captives in a foreign land. God became their savior, their deliverer. He set them free. And the part of the way he did that, remember, was he made a way where there was no way. He made a way in the sea. And he delivered them out. He parted the sea. They passed through the mighty waters. And he showed them, look, it does not matter what you are stuck in. I can get you out of it. I can get you out of what you're in and I can bring you into what I want for you because I'll part the waters. I will make a way where there is not even a way. And God did that for them, showing his power, delivering them out. Now, reminding them of that prior deliverance, it's almost as if God's saying, look, I've done it before. I'm gonna bring another deliverance as I get you out of the land of Babylon and captivity and I make a way to bring you back home again. I'm gonna make a way to come to pass again. God says, I've done it before. I've shown my power. I can do it again. I'm a God who changes not. Interesting the way he, he reminds them of that, that he's done it before, and therefore he could call for them and deliver them again. But then he also says this, verse 18, in connection to these things. 
but do not remember the former things. Well, wait a minute. You just, Lord, you just said, remember, remember the mighty deliverance that I did for you before. I can do it again. Trust me. I can work the same way I worked in time past in your life. I still have the same power. I'm still the same faithful God. But then he says, but don't remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Ponder and think over them too much. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? In other words, don't you sense it? Don't you recognize what I'm doing? He says, can't you see it beginning to happen? I will make a road now in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So last time he made a way in the sea. This time he'd make a way where there was no way through a wilderness and rivers in the desert to sustain them. Now, take notice. God is saying to them in verse 18 there, be careful that you don't focus too much on the past. God says, I, I have something that I want to do by my power, and I want you to reflect upon my power and what I did in the past so that you know I can do it again. But he says, but I want you to be careful that you don't dwell too much upon the past or focus too much on the past or relate too much to the past pattern and the way that it worked in the past in such a way whereby you're so focused on the past you miss the way in which I want to work right now in the present. Well, this isn't the way God did it last time. Well, maybe God wants to do it different this time. God says here, look, don't overly focus on the past. He says, behold, I want to do a new thing. I want to work in a new way. I'm still going to work powerfully. I'm going to accomplish the same end objective, deliverance, you know, setting you free, bringing you into the new thing I want for you. But God's saying, I don't have to work through the same funnel as I did last time. I can orchestrate it in a different way. I can work in a different manner. God does not limit himself to formulas and patterns and doing things the exact same way all the time. And he says here, be careful of thinking too much upon the past. You know, there is something very dangerous sometime about dwelling and focusing a little bit too much on past experiences or what happened in our past both whether it's things that were good because then we're always thinking, well, it's got to happen that exact same way. And so it's almost, it's got to happen like this. This is how we always did it. And God's saying, behold, I'm trying to do a new thing here. Let me do a new thing. Would you let me do the new thing that I want to do? It's just as good and just as wonderful, but it's a new thing now, God says. Let go of the old thing. Let it go. That's the old trophy. Was a good victory. <laughs> But I'm doing a new thing now. This is a new season. And God says, so embrace the new thing. And so sometimes that can be a hindrance. And the other times that we, I think, sometimes need to be careful of focusing too much on the past and past experiences are the negative aspect of past experiences. Sometimes we dwell too much on the past and focus too much on prior things. And that becomes a discouragement and a lack of faith or a resentment or a bitterment thing. And we're so focused on this. And we're still holding on to that so much. Again, the Bible tells us in the book of Philippians, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And he says, those who are mature will have this mindset. And see, look, we, we have to remember, sometimes if we are holding too much onto this thing in the past, God's saying, until you let go of it, you can't take my hand and let me guide you into the next thing, the new thing. And God's telling his people, whether it's the good things of the past or the bad things of the past. He says, be careful 
of recalling too much the former things, the former ways, considering the things of old, he says, I will do a new thing and it is going to spring forth. And he says, shall you not know it? He's almost saying, you know it. I know that you sense it, God says. And he's saying, just embrace it, be open to it, let it unfold. I will make a way where there is no way through my new thing that I'm doing. He says, and even the beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to sustain, to give drink to my people, to my chosen. Again, verse 21, this people I formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Again, God did these things and was working these ways because he wanted them to be able to praise him on the back end of it to be able to celebrate and praise the Lord for that new thing that he did in a fresh way in the current season they were in. But you have not called upon me, God says, O Jacob. In other words, they weren't calling upon God for help. And you have been weary of me, O Israel. Now, that's a sad thing to think about. God says to them, I see that you've become weary of me. Now, the idea there is we might say, you know, a person becoming, let's say, for example, weary of a particular person they're in a relationship with, right? I'm, I'm going to optimistically, hopefully, by the grace of God, say that never happens in marriage, but let's pick a dating relationship. Maybe it was you, or maybe it was the person you were dating at some point early in your life, and, and you kind of got the sense, mm, they're not into me no more. I think they kind of are getting tired of me. I kind of sense they're getting sort of weary of me, like, like there used to be this enthusiasm and this excitement, but now it's kind of like I've, I've become a burden to this person relationally. And they get weary of you. They get tired of you. They basically lose interest and grow apathetic and grow tired. And, and God says this in a relational sense. God says, you've become weary of me. Boy, that's sad. God was looking at their spiritual condition and he said, I can see what's going on in your heart towards me, the apathy. And God says, you've actually kind of grown tired of me. You've lost interest in me. You used to be passionate and enthusiastic, and you were excited about me and in love with me. But now some things have happened, and God says, now it seems like the relationship you once had with me that you enjoyed, now it seems like it's a burden to you. Oh, I got to do this for the Lord. Oh, I guess I better read my Bible. I guess I better go to church. They might notice if I'm not there. And, and, and God says, you've become weary of me. It's a sad state to develop into spiritually, and God saw this. He says, as they become weary and disinterested, it, notice it translated into their behaviors towards God. He says, you've not brought me the sheep for the burnt offerings. In other words, now they were withholding from God. Nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. They didn't care anymore about honoring God. They weren't bringing to God the offerings of worship. Again, their worship life was digressing. These were just symptomatic things of God recognizing the relationship was deteriorating in their hearts, he says. I've not caused you to serve with grain offerings nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifice. So notice, they, they lost an interest in worship. They weren't desirous of satisfying and pleasing the Lord anymore, where at one point that was really important. Like in a relationship, when you really love someone and you're into somebody and you're enthusiastic, right? You, you want to satisfy them. You want to please them all the time. And God noticed this had changed. They, they didn't care whether God was satisfied or not anymore. They were interested in self-satisfaction. 
They had digressed and pulled away. And to make it worse, God flips the tables as he evaluates and assesses them. He says, verse 24, look at the end of it, but you have burdened me with your sins, and you have wearied me with your iniquities. God says, you've become weary of me, and God says, I've become weary of all your sin. I've become burdened with all of your rebellion and your iniquity in turning away from me. The idea is they were causing grief and sadness to the heart of God in their sinful way of living. Now, in the New Testament, Ephesians 4 tells us as Christians that we are to be careful that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption, right? God by his spirit dwells within us. God, you know, so amazing. God loves us so much and wants such an intimate personal relationship. He literally gives us a part of himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God gives us the person of his spirit to take residence, to dwell within us. And so the Bible cautions us in regards to sinful attitudes and actions that we don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, that we don't weary burden, cause grief and sadness to, to the heart of God. And that word grieve there literally is, is a Greek term that speaks of the sorrow and deep grief someone feels when they are grieving and sorrowing over the loss of a loved one, the deepest form of probably human grief that we know. And God says, look, it's not that your sin, Tony, irritates me. It grieves me. It causes pain to my heart. It makes me sorrow when you do those things. And, and, and why? Here's why I think that that's true. Because as the Spirit of God dwells within me, and as I behave in a certain way, I'm selfish or you know, harsh with my words, or I don't speak, Ephesians 4, I don't speak words that edify, but instead words that are just corrupt and you know, hurtful and, and not healthy. God's Spirit is grieved with sorrow because he's dwelling within me, and the Spirit of God is grieved and saddened because he's dwelling within me saying, you don't have to act like that. I'm right here within you. I can empower you to be Christ-like. I can empower you to resist that temptation to sin that you just engaged in. How sad that you chose to resist me and submit to your flesh. And it, it saddens the Holy Spirit within us because he realizes we can live on a higher plane and, and that we basically choose at times to quench the Spirit and resist him and therefore we cause grief to the heart of God. He says, now, this is, again, astonishing the way the chapter concludes. <laughs> Despite God saying, I'm burdened with your sins and wearied by your iniquities, yet, the idea is, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. For my own sake, God says, because he's faithful to his covenant promises. Again, transgressions are willful acts of defiance. And he says, I blot them out and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case, he says, that you may be acquitted. The idea is state your case, case if somehow you can prove your innocence, that you're not guilty. Your first father sinned. In other words, he says, if you want to state your case, God says, let's go back to the beginning. Your first father was a sinner. Now, whether he's talking about Adam Certainly that was true. Whether he's talking about Abraham, 
the father of the Jewish nation, the very first one called. That was true. Abraham was a sinner and had his fair share of failures, or whether he's talking about Jacob, the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel, the national, you know, really kind of bringing into existence of the 12 tribes. That's true in all those senses. From the very beginning, they were sinful, and their mediators, those who worked on their behalf between them and God, leaders and priests and teachers, God says, they transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary, and I will give Jacob to, notice, the curse. The idea there, again, is the Deuteronomy, the curses and the blessings. They would bring curses and reproaches upon themselves when they would resist God's will and they would rebel against God. It wasn't that God cursed them. They would bring the curse, according to the law. They bring a curse upon their existence because of their sin when they could have brought blessings upon their existence when they obeyed God and followed God's word. The amazing thing in light of all that is, and we can fully relate because we are no different than the Jews, spiritually these same truths apply to our lives as well, that though those things are realities that we know and live out as well, is to take into consideration that God being so gracious and merciful says to us, even as he does in verse 25, yet I am he who blots out your transgressions and will remember your sins no more. That God blots out the stain of our failures. He cleanses us. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Though your sins are scarlet, God says, they can be made white as snow. And if that were not enough, that he says for his sake, because he wants relationship to be the way it is, he says, I will not remember your sins. Now look, can God not know something? He's God. He knows everything. So the concept of God saying, I will not remember your sins no more, the indication is that God makes a conscious choice to think upon them no longer. It's not as if he goes, now, what was, what was that stupid thing that you did? What was the reason I had to save you by the blood of Christ? I mean, you do seem like a pretty nice guy. It's the reality that God, in who he is, in his grace and love, and because of the just basis of Jesus Christ, he chooses to no longer think upon my transgressions, my failures, my acts of rebellion, all of the evil, sinful, wrong, selfish things that I've done. He says, I don't think upon it anymore. I think upon my son, and I think upon who you are in my son. Well, what a wonderful thing in some ways that we would have the same mindset of God. Maybe we need to stop thinking upon our own sins so much and being so distracted and condemnatory of ourselves and always fretting and worrying, is God get me? Is God get me? Is it because of... Because? And God's saying, what are you talking about? Why are you reminding me of things? Oh, Lord, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And we, we repeatedly apologize for the same thing 27 times over the next 27 months. And God's saying, I don't think about it. Why are you thinking about it? What I'm thinking about is that you are righteous in Christ, and I blot out your sins, and I don't want to remember it anymore. So let's stop talking about it. Let's stop thinking about it. And may God help us as well to have the heart of God and the mind of God 
that when we are engaged with someone else and their sin has affected us, that we would consciously choose by the power of God's Spirit to not be thinking upon and remembering the sins of other people. Because really, honestly, what does that accomplish ultimately other than just distraction? Just distraction in my mind, resentment, whatever, much better if we are to be like the Lord and say, I'm not saying you, ha- you, you can forget it because things happen, you may not be able to forget it. But you can choose not to think about it. right? You can choose to make a conscious, I'm not going to think upon that anymore. I'm going to let it be under the blood of Jesus because love covers a multitude of sins. Let's stand together.